friends, colleagues, and educators, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are delighted to be joined by none other than Dr. Eric Landrum from Boise State University, uh, the head honcho, really, of uh, the Society for Teaching of Psychology. Your name's all over all this stuff. So welcome to the program. Well, first off, thank you for having me, but no longer head honcho. I saw uh, that. A, f- a former head honcho, a uh, very capable head honcho now, but uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we're really delighted that you're uh, able to take some time to join us. We're excited to hear uh, kind of what you've got to say. I mean, educating in psychology is such a, uh, such a beast, and I think we're hoping to kind of get some ideas on maybe how to tame it and what some best practices are that we can apply moving forward, and, and just generally your thoughts on, on the matter and life in general. So. Well, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I'm very happy that both Kyle, you, and Drake are so persistent, because for our listeners, this is the 15th attempt at recording this <laughs> podcast, and I'm very happy that you don't give up easily. So <laughs> kudos to both of you for being so persistent and so driven. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. I think that's a mandatory skill to have in grad school, right? You've got to be just dogged, right? Right. That that doggedness, that persistent, that persistence is going to pay off in space. <laughs> well, fantastic. Um, Eric, maybe you can start by just kind of telling us a little bit about you. You've got a, a really cool, really interesting life story, kind of how you got to where you are. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. I think, I, I think, Kyle, that you have a future in diplomacy because <laughs> I actually don't think I have a cool life story. I know a bunch of people in psychology that have a super cool uh, life story, uh, but I, I will give you the short version. Um, I, I had a very um, milk toast Midwestern United States upbringing, grew up in Northern Illinois, went to uh, school in Illinois, graduated Southern Illinois University, PhD in cognitive psychology, um, late 1980s, um, very fortunate, very blessed, very privileged. And so um, I have been able to take advantage of the opportunities afforded to me. And so first job out of grad school, University of Wisconsin-Platteville for three years, next 28 years, um, Boise State University. So assistant professor, associate professor, full professor. I've been chair three times. I'm currently in my third iteration of serving as department chair. So um, the, the life story really isn't that interesting, to be <laughs> honest, um, other than being blessed and privileged. Um, and I just need to own that and be cognizant of that. But we're sure you've learned a lot along the way that we want to hear now. <laughs> oh, oh, a, t- a ton of things along the way. It's just that the life story isn't all that interesting. Um, and I, you know, uh, it's great to have a new audience for the trite phrases that I've used my entire life. And one of those is the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Ah, yes. Uh, and, and so, you know, the more I, I've been teaching, the, the more I realize I don't know or that the field doesn't know. And so uh, I still go into the classroom not knowing what's going to happen. And so we're chatting in the midst of what we now call COVID-19. And so uh, instructors around the world literally uh, high school and college, and actually K-12, by the, by the way, are in the middle of the massive pivot from face-to-face to online instruction. And so many of us who have not taught extensively face, uh, online are now having to do that pivot. And so even if you're experienced instructors, uh, a dear friend of mine, Jane Hallinan at University of West Florida, uh, recorded a little podcast recently about She's been teaching 40 years face-to-face, and she had to make the pivot to online a couple of weeks ago for the first time. And so um, 
there's all kinds of things that we are learning as instructors that we can't predict because our students are changing, our work conditions are changing, and the world is changing in ways that we can't predict. How many of us knew when we started this semester, this quarter, this term, that it was going to end like this? Yeah. Nobody. I mean, I don't think anyone on the planet had an idea that it was going to end like this. And so luckily, most, maybe it's many, instructors have a skill set where they can pivot and at least do the best they can for their students. It may not be the best learning experience. It may not be the learning experience that we intended for our students, but we'll try to make the best of it or at least complete it the best we can. And then in the summer, we'll retool. If we have to retool in the fall, we'll continue that. And so I think it's a skill set that educators have. I think it's a skill set that psychology educators are especially lucky to have because we're the ones that get to study learning and memory. We're the ones that study it for a living. And so we're going to be especially poised not only to retool our classes, but to help the rest of our university teachers uh, be able to retool their classes as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um... You know, I speaking own personal experience, I'm in the midst of taking um, graduate stats and ANOVA right now. And, and suddenly to take everything that you do kind of in a classroom and stats isn't necessarily the most enjoyable topic for anybody, but to suddenly move it all online is quite a challenge. And so I, I completely commiserate with other people. And yeah, it's a challenge. Well, it was hard enough already. And you've, you just added another layer of, you know, you can teach online and do a, a great job, but it is tremendously difficult to do that well. Mm -hmm. And if you talk to the best online teachers, it takes them thousands of hours to get good at it, just like it takes thousands of hours to get good at face-to-face -face teaching. And so to take that instructor who's teaching that graduate level ANOVA class, and I don't know, I, I don't know them. I have no idea who that is. And for goodness sakes, I don't want to offend them. Right. And I, <laughs> they're I great. Probably, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But, but even if they're great face to face, they may not have been prepared to take all those materials that they're using in your classroom mm -hmm. and take it to that online chat room. Yeah. So those materials may not be instantly potable in that environment. And so, and now, and, and let's be fair, um, many graduate students as well as undergraduates are now at home uh, dealing with their own health concerns. Some of those graduate students are dealing with their own homeschooling of their young children, uh, or they're dealing with their parents, or they're dealing with uh, their loved one in their house, their spouse or significant other lost their job and they're worried about their rent. And now some faculty members are in the exact same boat. Mm -hmm. They're now at home dealing with uh, little ones under their feet. Maybe their spouse lost their job. They're, they're doing their own daycare homeschool. And so we are in a really unusual time. And, and so making that difficult, that difficult subject matter even more difficult, uh, it would take an extraordinary teacher to be able to continue that quality education. I think uh, an interesting kind of, talking point at least for this before we get into you know your other work Eric uh, because this is so topical is you know the idea of having a lot of students in a class uh, and trying to adapt your your class it's, it's very different than in a graduate study a graduate student class where they're often smaller classes right mm -hmm. even even ours is around 30 students which is quite a lot for a graduate student class but I mean when you're talking about having these these other like undergraduate psychology classes which is predominantly what we're we'll talking about today 
uh, where you have you know hundreds of students, sometimes up you know more than 250 students uh, in first year classes, adjusting that lecture style uh, class experience onto an online platform where you're talking to a camera, I imagine would be very difficult for a lot of people. Yeah, I would even suggest that it might not be the best move, really, even if we weren't in the midst of COVID-19. I mean, think about the logistics of trying to do a synchronous, taking a Tuesday, Thursday, 1030 a.m. class, and now trying to do it synchronously, Tuesday, Thursday, 1030. Would that really be leveraging the, the tools of online education to their best ability. I actually, and I'm not an expert in this by any means, but I, I kind of don't think so. I, I think the, the benefit of online education and that, that technology is that you meet students where they're at. Okay. And so that you develop asynchronous tools and asynchronous pedagogy so that it's convenient for the students. And so you develop online modules, you develop lectures that are pre-packaged so students can listen to it at their convenience. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not so sure that the live 75 minute lecture, Tuesday, Thursday, 1030, why couldn't that be pre-recorded and online um, if you had to do that? And then you could do a live Q&A, I suppose. And by the way, we know that a 75 minute chunk of time of straight lecture is not good pedagogy to begin with. <laughs> And, yeah. and we lose, we tend to lose, we tend to lose attention span, depending on the study, one to five minutes into a video. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so just record, even, even if I recorded a 75 minute lecture and plopped it on YouTube, probably isn't best practice to begin with. And so, and, and I know, I know some instructors around the nation, around the world have, have tried to do that to kind of mimic that continuity. And I'm not, I'm not going to be overly critical of that because that's what they know. That's what they're trying to do. And, and they may have good reasons for doing that. But as we think longer term, I think we have to think about the strategy of why we're doing what we're doing and how can we best serve our students. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that speaks to this, what I foresee as being the sort of law of unintended consequences is that, you know, everybody will move things online. And we're going to have pushback potentially from two different areas. One being instructors who are like, hey, I figured this out. This is fairly easy. I'm just going to go ahead and do everything online now or put a huge amount of my work online that could potentially be to the detriment of the students. But I also imagine that, especially at some uh, educational institutions, there might be a big push to have uh, instructors provide far more online class material. And so, you know, something that oh, suddenly, yeah, I was able to take the seminar course of 30 students and move it online and we made the, made the most of it. Now suddenly, uh, you know, somebody higher up that writes paychecks is suddenly saying, hey, if you can do this for 30 students online, why can't you do this for 300 students online? And I don't know that that's something that we want to be doing, right? Well, Kyle, so, so there's a couple of really interesting things in there. I, it, I'm going to boil it down to two. The mm -hmm. first one is it's all about assessment. We have to be doing meaningful assessment, whether it's graduate level education or undergraduate level education. If we're doing meaningful assessment, then we'll know if the switch from face-to-face -to, -face to online is harmful or helpful or no effect. And we would also know if the move from 30 students online to 300 students online is harmful, helpful, or no effect. So I, I, assessment has to be the centerpiece and the linchpin of all of this. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that a lot of educators are not doing meaningful assessment. 
And I'm not talking about testing. I'm not talking about giving a midterm and a final on multiple choice or a Scantron or Blackboard or Moodle. I'm talking about meaningful assessment, skills-based assessment, skills that are linked to the jobs that our majors, our graduates are doing after they're done with their baccalaureate education. Um, not, not writing a paper in a class per se, but a portfolio that might follow them year after year uh, into the workforce. So, so if we were doing that meaningful assessment, then we could know, um, is there a beneficial effect or no effect of going into, um, into that online environment or mm -hmm. changing the enrollment? So I, I, I think that's one piece of what you said. And, and if, if we were doing that, then we will know our, the effect. But the second thing is, is I think that is embedded in what, what you said is that we're gonna have to really study what's happening here with trends in the future. You were talking about um, the changes in faculty and what's expected of faculty and who's writing the paychecks. But I'm also thinking about, are students gonna be returning to residential colleges? Yeah, oh and yeah. What, why, you know, so Boise State made a decision, I think it was a wise one, to move all of their summer school online. Mm -hmm. So, as the so, UBC, yeah. Okay, it makes good sense. You've sent, we've sent students home for the rest of the spring semester. It probably makes good sense, given our timeline right now in April, are they gonna come back uh, for a summer semester that starts you know, May 12th? Well, probably not. Well, are they gonna come back on August 24th? Mm -hmm. what, what percentage or proportion uh, what percentage should we have more online courses ready this August than last August? Mm -hmm. Should we be ready to serve them where they are? Should we be ready to have more or fewer dorm rooms available? Or will they be yearning for that interaction so so much that we better be ready for an onslaught and uptick in yeah. freshman applications? Yeah, I, I mean, and so there's so much going on here. I, 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 I don't study long-term trends in higher ed for a living, but I'm, but I'm interested in it. And we already know there's a deceleration of young people going to college and there's a deceleration in birth rate, at least in North America. Mm -hmm. So, so there's gonna, there was already gonna be a slowing of going to college and now COVID-19. So, so between us changing our practices in higher ed and the changing dynamic around us, um, I don't say this lightly, but we've got to get our act together. We've got to make sure that we're delivering. And I know people hate this language sometimes. We've got to make sure that we're developing a good product and that we're assessing it and we know what we're doing well. Because if we aren't good at what we're doing, why bother spending the time and the money to do it? Certainly, yeah. Um, Eric, maybe you could just while well, you mentioned it, I, I think it might be something that I'd be curious about at least, and I'm sure our listeners as well. What do you mean by a meaningful assessment. Yeah, so I, I, I tried to give you a couple examples there quickly. So um, I, I think sometimes people who don't think about this a lot, don't think about it a lot, meaning uh, I give tests, great. Um, I give two term papers, I give quizzes, and um, that's it. And grading is about giving feedback to students about their performance. Assessment for me is about getting feedback about my performance. So if I use a rubric, for example, when I'm grading, I can look at student performance in a rubric and I might see that 
it was part of assignment that was more, I might see that the APA format grading on a paper was more problematic than let's say the um, search and like info for the background literature. So if I'm using a carefully designed rubric, uh, when I'm grading, I can extract what I would call assessment information that will tell me as an instructor, when I teach this course the next time, I'm gonna emphasize something differently. Right. So for me, assessment data is about how I can improve. Grade data is about how students can improve. And by the way, I should just be fair, there are other people around the country in the US who would not agree with that definition. And that's okay. Um, that's okay, they're not here today. You've got the floor. <laughs> yeah, but I would encourage you to invite them on and yeah, because yeah. they have very valid views. Okay. Absolutely. Um, so, so for me, uh, that assessment data informs our community of practice as psychology instructors. That, you know, so, and that assessment data has to be systematic across courses, across years. It gets rolled up into these outcomes assessments that we do at the departmental level. We give those to those accreditors eventually, where we have assessments and accreditation, and we have external reviewers come and visit our departments every five to seven years. And so, ideally, those are used to help improve the functioning of, de of departments. Grade data isn't used that way. Mm -hmm. We get a report about who's giving too many A's and who's giving too many F's and it's, it's about um, grade inflation. But that doesn't help us become better instructors. Good assessment data, in my view, helps us become better instructors. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eric, maybe we can take this moment to transition a little bit into kind of talking about some stuff that you had planned on speaking at UBC about when you were going to be coming up here. And I hope that you still do get a chance to come. But um, a yep. lot of that sort of seemed to center around sort of psychology undergraduates and what their prognosis is. I use that term sort of jokingly, but what, what is it that they, what, you know, where does that all go? What, what do people do with a psych degree? Well, it's been really sweet talking to you guys. I've really enjoyed my time with you. And it, it looks like we're out of time. And no, so to, to you be senior listeners, I wish you all well. And God bless and take care. Right. <laughs> Thank you for having a sense of humor about that. So, um, all right. Um, psychology is, as we all know, is a very dynamic, ubiquitous degree, you can do a lot with it. Here's the, it's a double-edged sword. You can, you can do a lot with it. Anyone who says that you can't do anything with a bachelor's degree in psychology is an outright liar, all right? In the United States alone, and I'm, I'm, I, I apologize, I do not know these numbers for Canada. I, I, I don't, and I'm sorry. In the United States alone, in the last year, the data are available. 116,000 individuals earn their bachelor's degree in psychology. Um, that number has been over 100,000 for about the last 17 years. So that many people aren't earning a bachelor's degree in psychology and not doing anything with it. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. At least in the US, it's normally around the fourth, it varies between the third, fourth, and fifth most popular major in the US wow. annually. So to say that you can't do anything with it is just, a bald-faced lie. It's inaccurate. It's much more nuanced than that. And it goes like this. There is no occupation in the United States, I think I can even say Canada, that exclusively qualifies you with a bachelor's degree in psychology. However, there are really good jobs that you can get with a bachelor's degree in psychology 
but you can also get those good jobs with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice, a bachelor's degree in sociology and social work. Some of those jobs, a bachelor's degree in English, in French, in mechanical engineering. So that's the rub. It, psychology is a great social sciences degree, and we compete sometimes with people with great humanities degrees, depending on the job. So, so that, that's the difficulty, and that doesn't fit on a coffee mug well. <laughs> and so when you have a, a prospective student and his or her parents in your office, and they say to you, well, what can my daughter do with a bachelor's degree in psychology? You have to have that nuanced conversation and sometimes the parent doesn't want to listen to that. And this, this drives me a little bit unhinged. And, and I have this debate sometimes with people. But in the United States, we don't have a list of the top 10 occupations that you can have with a bachelor's degree in psychology. So I can't answer that question when that parent's in my office or when they used to be in my office. Now it's when we're doing it via Zoom, right? <laughs> so... so now there are people that will that have that have done studies where you can have broad job categories, you know, big, you know, like sales or marketing or business, but we don't have the top ten occupations down to the ONET job codes. Yeah. So we don't we don't have the specifics, and so um, the Association for Psychological Science hasn't done it. Psychi hasn't done it. The American Psychological Association hasn't done it. To my knowledge, the Canadian Psychological Association hasn't done it. So, so no one's done it. Uh, some organizations have done more than others. APA, to their credit, has done a lot. And they have the Center for Workforce Studies, to their credit, also does a lot in this area. But we don't have enough information about what psych majors do. And again, at least in the US, it's between 56 and 57% of bachelor's degree holders, um, that's the highest degree that they earn when they go into the workforce. So we don't know information about the majority of those who are in a bachelor's degree in psych. So I guess to me, this brings up a couple questions on that. And I think you've kind of answered it. We don't know. But if you had to categorize kind of psych majors uh, who go on after they're done their degrees, you know, if you had to take a guess or hazard a guess at it, you know, what, what do percentage end up in, in, you know, workforce in the workforce right away, what percentage end up going, you know, pursuing graduate school or other professional type schools? Um, how, do you, how does that break down? It, it, well, do you have a guess at it? APA published a study in 2018 uh, based on 2017 data. And it's a really cool study. Um, I think it's based on NS, uh, NSF data where um, they look at people in the US with bachelor's degree in psychology. And I want to say, and, I want to say they found like 3.4 million people in the U.S. in 2017 had a bachelor's degree in psychology. Of those 3.4 million, 57%, it might be 56, it's 56 or 57, let's call it 56. 56% <laughs> had a bachelor's degree in psychology. 30% went on for more but not in psychology. So they okay. went on for, for more education, but uh, med school, dental school, law school, vet school, OT, PT, PA, those other professional schools, but not psych. And then that last 14% went on for more education in psychology. So at least in the US, we know about 14% um, with a bachelor's degree go on for more education in psychology. That's a pretty high number when you think about it. Like 
14 percent of 100 and something thousand graduates yeah 116,000 yeah yeah and it, it's a pretty high number but uh when i talk to my students in my classes um from 25 to 50 percent think they're going to go on yeah yeah absolutely and either plans change or you know what happens a lot is that they think they're going to go on but they're kind of burnt out when they graduate and they get a job and what happens is that they get a kind of a decent job <laughs> that that's kind of decent pay and then they have it for a couple of years and they, they plan on i'm going to go to grad school but i get this decent job and then they have it for a couple of years and they get a couple of decent raises and they start thinking, am I going to stop with this decent job with decent pay and start going into debt? Yeah. And, and a lot of them decide right now, I don't need to go to graduate school. So I think that's where that high percentage of students in school start thinking, maybe I don't really need to go to grad school, at least not right now. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, I anecdotally, I'd say that your numbers are probably bang on, like somewhere in that range. I, it's not uncommon for students to ask um, Drake, and I'm sure you've had this experience, Tiang, they'll come and ask you like, hey, what, what should I do? I want to go to grad school. And like, well, you know, <laughs> here are the things. <laughs> like, and that's a really important question. And I've actually got a research assistant working with me right now. And I've been working on, on and off on this for years. I, I'd like to help students think about how they answer that question more systematically. Mm -hmm. um, because what, what we do, like what you just said about Drake and Kyle, you do this too. We all tell our own story. Yeah. You know, psychology faculty members are really good at helping students frame and think about, should I go to graduate school or not? What most of us are not good at, and I'll, I'll just speak for me. I'm not good at helping students think about what are your workforce options? Yeah. Because with a bachelor's degree in psychology, I did not go straight into the workforce. I went straight into graduate school. Yeah. And that, that kind of brings up another important question is, you know, these students are looking for advice from individuals, many individuals who may not have actually ever left academia, may never have actually had a job other than outside of academia or other than in, within academia, I should say. So, you know, you're asking a bunch of people who have been you know, we talked about privilege off the top. I know I'm privileged. Drake, I'm sure, feels the same way. You know, we've been lucky in that we're in grad, graduate school. But, you know, a lot of people have this trajectory that, that actually they, ne they never work. That, you know, that shitty McDonald's job or, or, you know, a bagger at a grocery store or whatever it might be. And they've been lucky and fortunate in, in many ways. So, so what would you say to, what, you know, what should faculty say in that situation where they've had this one sort of cloistered view of everything. Well, I, I think probably the best thing that faculty, faculty can, actually there's two things that faculty can do. One is acknowledge that and just own it and cop to it. And the other thing would be where appropriate in classes, bring in guest speakers that have that alternative experience. Bring back alumni who uh, maybe uh, weren't straight A students and struggled, went on, were successful, but didn't go to graduate school. You can be successful not going to graduate school. Uh, bring back some alums that did go to grad school, but bring back some alums who didn't. Um, bring back some alums who dropped out. Yeah. They're not alums, but bring them back to campus and show that, you know what, you can drop out of school and eventually you too can find your way. Not everybody earns their college degree. Again, I'm sorry, I don't know the Canadian numbers. In the US, the six-year completion rate is 59%. Oh, wow. 
So 40% of my students after six years are not going to finish their bachelor's degree, but they're going to go on and do things and get jobs and be contributors to society. There's no reason we can't bring them back as guest speakers as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. These... I think I think having a an appropriate person to go and ask these questions too is what I think a lot of the psych students are lacking. Right? We talk about how they go to their professors and they ask, you know, what do you recommend? I'm a good student uh, and I work hard, and obviously they're going to recommend that what they know, uh, and and not knowing, I guess, and and kind of to the point that you're making before as well, Eric, is that we're not really sure what these jobs are, right? We're not sure what the top ten jobs are. So how are we supposed to pull in? someone that's from these jobs if we don't really know what they are. Right. And, and so, and, and that's where you need to have the collaboration of your alumni office. And I think that's great. Your, yeah, I really appreciate of, that thought. Too. Of your career services office. And, mm-hmm. and some of the, uh, and especially for the two of you who are early in your careers at UBC, those older faculty, I'm sorry, those more seasoned faculty members <laughs> who have been around longer, they're going to know your alums. They're going to know the alums that graduated 15, 20, 25 years ago, but especially the alumni office. And most of those alums will be thrilled to come back especially if they live in the area. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they're probably very proud of your department and proud of their experience. Uh, and they would probably very much like to come back. And, and, and you don't have to do it yourself. Uh, it would be a burden for one person to take that on. So hopefully there's a committee of people. And the other tip I would give is that video record them. Yes. So maybe you don't have to ask the same people keep coming back time after time. And you can put them on your website so that other people can benefit from them as well. Yeah, yeah that's a great idea. And I mean, that, that actually sort of brings us back full circle to this idea of implementing online resources and digital, digital resources to... Uh, as, as well as your podcast. I mean, and yeah. this, I mean, you're already perpetuating that legacy of recording these and making them available. We're doing our best out here, Eric. We're really trying. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm actually, I'm being serious about that. I mean, and good for you for taking the initiative. Um, you know, in the, the podcast that I have with Garth Neufeld, uh, we talked to uh, Sierra Kidder uh, a while back, and we just released this podcast relatively recently. And she started as a new professor, this thing that she invented called the Novice Professor. And she started it as a blog. And uh, it was this thing that she just kind of started as a whim, and it has grown into this awesome thing. Okay, so no th- this thing that the two of you have started as graduate students is awesome. Don't underestimate what you have done. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, some might say it's easy to start a podcast. It's not easy to start one and keep it going. <laughs> yeah, starting is easy. Continuing it is right. the hard part. <laughs> it's, just, it, it's just like a website. It's relatively easy to get a website up. To keep it going and sustainable and updated, that's the hard part. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I'm encouraging you, don't, seriously, don't underestimate what you've done here. Um, it's more special than you know. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very kind of you to say. Um, the episode that you're referring to is episode 88 uh, of your Psych Sessions podcast. Oh, look at you. Ah, uh, you know, I do my background work before we get this stuff going. <laughs> all right, that's very um, kind. Oh, absolutely. So as our listeners will know, we, uh, we do include all the references and other material on brainbuzzpodcast.com. So uh, there we'll include contact information for yourself. We'll also include some info about how you can find Psych Sessions podcast, although if you've got fingers in Google, you'll, you should be able to figure that out pretty easily as well. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyways, so enough uh, aside from that, uh, our little plug of uh, plug of our own website and your yeah. show. Um, what uh, I'm curious to know, you know, we've talked to this point about uh, psych undergraduates and the skills that they have. What skills 
do they have that are unique to psychology undergraduates? Well, what you mean, what skills do psychology undergraduates have that are unique compared to other undergraduates? Yeah, well, I know that we've talked about, you know, sociology, humanities, and other types of uh, undergraduate degrees and sort of competing in the workforce, but what makes a psychology undergraduate unique? Yeah. What's it, make it, what makes it marketable, I guess, as yeah, well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there are all kinds of things I think that make them marketable. It would be hard. I'd be hard pressed to, without data, to say that that they're better critical thinkers, let's say, than sociology mm -hmm. majors. I don't think I'd actually say that. Um, I, I I think I would probably rely on um, the APA guidelines 2.0 and the kind of things that they look at. Um, obviously, the you know, we all love and adore the content areas of psychology. And so that, that specialty training and looking at, and especially, I, I can't help, but it may seem cliche right now, but if you, you look at what's going on in the world in April of 2020 and COVID-19, um, psychology majors are well-suited to be understanding what's going on in the world. And if you, even if you, if, even if you were to um, thumb through an introductory psychology textbook, and think about the chapters in that book and thinking about your life, and the people around you, thinking about physiological psychology, brain and behavior, motivation and emotion, social psychology, um, research methods. I, I think about those chapters in that book. I think about the courses our majors take, the topics that our intro psych students study. Those topics would be things that would help citizens survive what's going on right now. So I think uh, skill development, content, content knowledge, and and comprehension of those things is a definite advantage for psychology majors. I also think th that typical combination of statistical methods and research methods, uh, especially if you can add in a little bit at least or more of qualitative methodology to that quantitative skill set, I think is a real strength of psychology majors within the social sciences. Um, I, that, and, and of course, we're, we're all biased here. Of course we believe that or else we wouldn't be studying <laughs> it. And, and the two of you wouldn't be planning a career based on those things. And I wouldn't have spent 30 <laughs> that many years. Uh, I did that on purpose. That was not a technical malfunction. Don't blame my editing on that. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is not an editing faux pas. It was 30 years. Um, uh, studying that, uh, studying these topics. And so, um, but oral communication, the written communication skills. I mean, uh, we know that learning how to write in APA format seems like a chore, but, but there, is a, there is an elegance to thinking like a, psych, like a psychological scientist. That APA format and style helps us think and structure our thoughts in a certain way. I, I can't think in a way that looks like introduction, results, method, discussion. Yeah. That would hurt my brain. It doesn't work like that. You don't put the results before the method. It just doesn't happen. It would be like making a recipe out of order. The cookies wouldn't bake right if you <laughs> mixed it wrong kind of thing. And, and so, so I, I think there are some and again, like I said, we're biased, but there are some definite advantages, you know, the, the ethical training and problem solving that we embed in psychology majors. Not, and I'm not talking about any one particular class, but over a, a typical curriculum, 
mm-hmm. are the are the are the advantages. And again, I'm gonna I'm this you know broken record part two. Um, we only know that our students get that if we are doing meaningful assessment. Mm-hmm. We only know if they have those that content knowledge, those requisite skills, that ethical thinking and problem solving. Um, that ability to communicate orally and in writing if we're doing meaningful assessment at different points in the major and at that capstone experience, that culminating senior project or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you brought up some really, really excellent points. You know, there's um, psychology, I think, psychology undergraduates are exposed to a lot of critical ways of thinking that can really benefit us in the long run. Um, and and developing of of different ways of thinking and and yeah I don't know we're we're biased right I mean yeah. there, there's nothing more interesting more interesting than psychology you know we study us there's nothing more interesting than human behavior so of course we're biased yes we need chemists yes we need people who speak world languages yes we need mechanical engineers yeah we need those people yeah whatever um, <laughs> but but there's nothing more interesting than human behavior because we're all humans and that that chemist that physicist that mechanical engineer that the people who speak world languages they're all human and so Mm-hmm. That's why some people call psychology a hub science. We really are the center of everything. I think that's I mean, a great title for this episode, hub science. Yeah. I'm just throwing it out there, Drake. You can tell me what. And that, that's not my term. You know, uh, you got to give that to John Cassiopo. And uh, there's another reference that comes before that I could look up for you. <laughs> yeah, no that, worries. That's not, that's not my, I didn't coin that phrase. <laughs> Fair enough. Sorry, Drake, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I think it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting to talk about because I've had, I mean, again, pulling from anecdotes, but there's a lot of different experiences you'll have throughout this undergrad experience, right? And especially coming from a high, high school perspective. I mean, I think, I think this episode, I, I want to think about how this episode will reach multiple audiences, right? We're talking mm-hmm. about academics that have kind of went through this, that are going to be listening to this episode to hear what you have mm-hmm. to say about teaching. We're going to have undergrads that are probably currently taking their psychology degrees that are going to be listening to this and possibly younger, younger individuals that are interested in psychology trying to figure out, you know, why should I be taking psychology? What pathways will it open up for me? And I think um, from my own experience, I've heard different things from family members or friends saying, you know, what are you going to do with this psychology degree? You're going to go right. nowhere with this, right? And so you bringing these points up and addressing this, these issues, I think, I mean, are the things that make us mark, make you marketable as just an undergrad, just an undergraduate, uh, you know, graduate um, uh, with this bachelor's degree, you can do these things because you're connecting with humans, and right. So any any jobs that really have any interaction with humans, be it online or offline, now we don't really think about that so much. Um, that could be a strength. And I think I'm curious, you know, what business, like, uh, you know, we talk about business, we talk about healthcare and humanities, we talk about um, you know, all these other things where you're interacting with humans, you know, sales is often talked about as, you know, people go to sales because they're in psychology and they understand how to interact with humans, which is great because we need people to interact with humans in appropriate ways. Um, but there's so many areas that, that psychology can reach. And I think that's the important takeaway, at least from what I'm getting from you, is that, you know, from those 57%, which is a large chunk of these undergrad students, they're going into different areas where they can use this understanding of the human psyche uh, in their everyday. Well, I, I, first off, I think you're exactly right. And, and let's flip it like this. I can't think of an area where psychology can't reach. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, yeah. mean, I, mean, I mean, other than a specialized discipline or job that requires a license. Right. But I mean, 
what what aspect of our daily lives might a psychology major not be qualified for other than something that's specialized that requires a master's or a do doctorate or a special license? The, and the, the other piece, Drake, that, that you touched on that, that I want to mention is that um, psychology majors at the bachelor's level and above, they don't know the skills that they have uh, because they don't know how to tell their story and that's faculty members' faults because faculty members are crappy at telling their own story and many colleges and universities are crappy at telling their own story. We have, higher education has been on autopilot, I don't know, maybe, I'm gonna maybe call it 150 years. And well before COVID-19, uh, we got the wake up call from online places like the University of Phoenix and Ashford and other competitors that there was a new game in town. And just recently in the past 20 years, we've had to start showing, hey, this is meaningful, this is important. It's worth the hundreds of thousands of dollars that some parents put forward for four-year education. And so on a, on a more micro level, we don't do a good job helping our students be able to tell their story on a resume. We're a little bit better at helping students tell it in a graduate school application because mm -hmm. faculty members and grad students had to do it on their grad school application and faculty members did it when they applied to grad school and then when they got their faculty member gig. But we're not really good at helping that 57% who mm -hmm. don't do that and they're filling out resumes and they're writing cover letters. We're not really good at that. And the, here's the example I'll give you. I, I'll overhear students who are going to apply for jobs in the Treasure Valley here in Boise, Idaho, and they didn't have a chance to do a, become a research assistant. They were too busy working. And they had my research methods class. In that class, they develop a survey, they ask the questions, they collect data through Psych 101 subject pool, they analyze it using SPSS, they write a full boat manuscript from stem to stern. But I'll, over, I'll overhear them talking to one another and they're writing up their resume and they'll say, I, I, I never did any research. I wasn't an RA for anybody. And when I overhear them, I'll gently go, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> didn't you have my research methods class where you did a research project where you analyzed data, you used SPSS, you wrote an APA manuscript from top to bottom? And they go, oh yeah, I did. So our, our, our students aren't good at thinking and self-reflecting on their own undergraduate experiences and then being able to, oh yeah, how do I put that into my resume using action verbs? And yeah. then being able to optimize it for today's, the year 2020, for today's um, scanners that big companies use because they're doing optical character recognition. Human beings aren't looking at these anymore, but companies are using these programs that pop for keywords. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to teach our students how to do this. And so one of the things that I did in my uh, 400 level psych measurements class last semester is I built in an assignment in the class where they had to describe what they were learning in the class and then put it on their resume and then turn in their resume as part of a class assignment. So I could see how they were describing their skills and abilities they were learning in my class on an assignment. Mm -hmm. That's brilliant. That's really cool. Yeah, that's really, really cool. 
because I got to walk the walk. I can't just sit here and complain yeah. about it on this really cool podcast. I got to complain about it and do something about it in my own classes. Well, Eric, yeah. I think I think that is kind of echoed as well, even within high school education here. I think I think it's not it's not just with psychology edu- right. like undergraduate education right here, right? Like this is often yeah. echoed within all levels of education, where their uh, students are always saying, "They didn't teach me how to do this that came in, that's, that's important in my life now, right?" Like ten years later, I wish they would have taught me this in school, like right. writing resume. And a writing resume is one of those main things where it's like, you know, I wish they did a better job with this. Uh, or do your taxes, things like that. Like those Absolutely. are the things that you wish you were being taught. And so it, it, it makes a lot of sense that you're kind of trying to make them think, okay, once we're done this class, once you're done your undergraduate degree, what are we going to be making of this this time? And how are you going to be translating that? Almost, you know, teaching people how to be biographical or autobiographical in the way that they go about their life. Uh, and I think that's a really cool approach and something that throughout all education uh, is kind of something that needs to be echoed more. I, I agree with you completely. I, I think, you know, students need to be more self-reflective. So I'll get students to their senior year, they're taking a capstone class for me, and they haven't thought about what they're going to do. And they're going to graduate in three months and they start to panic. And it's not that they've been lazy, it's that they've been busy. They've had two jobs or they've had two jobs and they've been an RA and a TA and they've been in athletics. And they just haven't had the time to stop and think about what am I going to do? And so then they start to panic and then they're going to take a gap year uh, because they, they thought they might be interested in grad school, but they haven't had the time to think about it. And they know they've missed the deadlines to apply. They know they haven't studied for the GRE and, 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 and we haven't structured it where we have made them slow down in a class their junior year and, and started to think about what's your future going to be like. We could have done it curricularly and, and made them think about it, but we didn't do it for whatever reason. So you're, you're exactly right. We, we, we've got, we can do some things to structure this. And sometimes that's not popular because we get a transfer student and now we're making them thinking about their career. They're 58 years old. They're coming back to school. They're going, why are you making me do this? Well, there's a reason why we're trying to meet every student's needs, not just mm-hmm. yours specifically. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, this kind of brings up a, an interesting question, I think. What can be done as a faculty member in a situation, obviously we want to engage students, we want to draw the best out of them. I think that people who people who want to be educators are probably out there doing it because they want to see their students succeed. So how do we do so in a system where undergraduates aren't necessarily designed to be successful? Like we have these grading policies and these grading criteria in place to ensure that a certain percentage, and I don't mean UBC alone, I mean every university, Right. A certain percentage just simply won't be successful. But I mean, it also might be, I also want to kind of correct that out with another point slash question is that how are we measuring success is an important part too, yeah. right? So you talking about grade, us talking about grades, I always try and uh, when speaking with students about grades, trying to open up and trying to address the fact that, you know, there is things outside of this class, like Eric's been talking about when we're talking about assessment, like, are they learning the material? Are, are they actually, you know, growing from this course? Although I would say, you know, 60% of the students I talk to don't give a shit whether or not they're <laughs> learning. It's what the grade we're, we're, we're giving them is, right? So yeah. like, you know, that balance is also important in what we're talking as, what we're considering success is important too, I guess. Well, I, I, think, I think there's a bunch of things in there. And so, so Kyle, I think to, to yours, I, I think it's partly, you know, explaining the grading system, explaining that as an instructor, I am locked into this. 
I have very little control, but then giving them all the tips that you can on how to maximize it and minimize harm. So there are probably some very common pitfalls that students run into in the UBC in that particular system that you would want to warn them about right away. So there's probably some epic mistakes people have made. Maybe it's uh, missing class or maybe it's not knowing about the ad drop deadline or whatever. I, I don't know what they are, but mm -hmm. you know, you can be an advocate for your students by just making sure that they're informed and they know about the policies and they, and they know how it works because I'm guessing that especially freshmen get to the end of that first semester and they are, they have some real surprises waiting for them oh, yeah. uh, because they didn't really understand it. Um, and so you can't change the system but you can probably change the way your students understand the system. Yeah, yeah. certainly. And Drake, to, to your point, you're right about, you know, we, can, we can't sometimes help students stop focusing on grades. But one of the things that I've tried to do, at least in some upper division classes, I've tried to change the nature of some of my assignments so that they're, they're less memorizing and more real world based. And so in my capstone class, I actually have my students uh, write a script for a public service announcement based on a psychological principle. And I have, I call it a podcast. I have them record it as a PSA uh, using Audacity software, free software, uh, two to three minutes. And so they have to, so it's usually, my, my capstone is usually a class of 60 to 70 students. So there's no way we would have time in class to have 70 students get up and give a three minute talk, mm -hmm. but I can have them record 73 minute um, mm -hmm. podcasts and then I listen to them and grade them. And right. so they write a script in an APA format and then they record it. And so they get, the, they get a technology, they get, the, they get a chance to talk out loud. Um, I do that, I have them do an infographic on a, on a history of psychology, a, a person from the history of psychology. So I, so rather than getting, and that doesn't stop their focus on grades per se, but at least they're not trying to memorize and regurgitate so much. That, that kind of rote memorization focus, at least they're focusing on things I think that they're gonna transfer to the workplace actually way more than they're gonna transfer to grad school. And to grad school, how many infographics have you done? Probably not a lot. Um, I worked as an RA and I did exclusively infographics. Oh, you did? <laughs> you, wow, okay. I worked on infographics for half a year. <laughs> I've wow. never done an infographic. Very rare, very okay. rare. Okay, yeah. well, well, that's, all. but and so I think, you know, yeah, getting students to stop thinking about grades, especially those who are going to grad school, yeah, that's probably not in their best interest because grad schools are gonna consider GPA. And you know what? There, there is a time, and I, I think I can safely say this to both of you, even in both of your lives, eventually people will not care about your GPA. Oh yeah. So there will, <laughs> there, there will be a time. Uh, I don't know what your future plans are, whether you want to be faculty members or go into industry, but eventually people are going to stop asking you what your GPA was. <laughs> I look forward to that day. <laughs> yeah, it, it's coming. Yeah. I, I haven't I, asked in a while, so I'll give yeah. like, it happens sooner than you think. Right. Uh, but undergrads, we get it. Yeah. 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 It's, Absolutely. it's an extension of high school, right? I think like Absolutely. it really is hard to kind of get away from the fact that you're you've been assessed in this manner for so long, right? Right. You know, we, 15 years of your life. Like it's, it's, it's what you're ingrained to know and that, to respond to. That's exactly the word. We, we have ingrained it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, it, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's really interesting. I love to 
I, I also like the point where you're talking about, you know, they might be learning different skills uh, and these transferable skills, you know, usually what's at least what I, the way I see it is if I'm teaching my students and they care about all they care about a great about his grades, that's fine. Maybe they'll accidentally pick up some transferable skills along the way. <laughs> and if that's by proxy. Outcome, yeah, by proxy of just doing it and not really acknowledging how important it is, they might just continue to, to use that skill later on. And I'm happy with that. I kind of think about it the other way. I don't, ex <laughs> I don't expect students to remember any of the content at all. And, and I think there's actually some decent data about that. But if they remember the utility of an infographic, or mm -hmm. if, they re if, they recall, if they can remember, oh, I can use Audacity and it's free, I might have to re record some audio someday. And if they forget about uh, social loafing from chapter 16 and, and the <laughs> infrastructure textbook, I'm actually okay with that. Because they yeah. can Google, honestly, they can Google that. Absolutely. They can, they can Google the term. Eric, I promise you, as soon as they have a job that requires any group work, they will immediately remember social loafing. That'll come back like it hit them like a ton <laughs> oh, of bricks. It, it'll come back. They just may not remember the term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but, the, but the conceptual demonstration will definitely come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Great. Uh, Eric, I wanted to ask you, is there anything you'd like to talk about? I, 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 we've driven this conversation, I, and I want to be respectful of your time. I've, I've been so appreciating our conversation and enjoying it so thoroughly, but is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd really like to talk about? Well, I think this has been a great warm-up. When are we going to record? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Hey, well, Eric, you have, as absolutely any time, and I say this genuinely, you have... Uh, a mic is always yours. Anytime you'd like to come on and chat with us, we'd obviously love to hear what you have to say. It could be about anything, honestly. I'm, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I, I appreciate that very much. Now that you've got a, a minute here to kind of say anything that you'd like, is there anybody you'd like to say hello to or, or shout out to, or uh, do you want to kind of shout out to your own podcast? Now would be the, the moment, perhaps. Wow, what, what pressure. If only I had <laughs> fair warning. Um, Put them on the spot like this. So no, you know. not really. Um, I, I want to thank both of you for, for your persistence and your time today. Um, I've, uh, I've been blessed in a lot of ways. And so the people who need to be thanked have been thanked many times. And I'm, I'm continually appreciative of the gifts I've been given and the privilege I've been extended. So thank you both for having me today. Thanks again, Fantastic. Eric. Great. Well, if you've enjoyed the program, uh, don't forget to leave us a review, leave us a star, a like, whatever that might be. It really helps. It lets other people know that, hey, I've enjoyed listening to this and so might you. Um, if you found it on Apple, Google, or Spotify, let them know there. Um, if you have found us some other way, some other means, leave us a note, brainbuzzpodcast.com. You can contact us. It comes directly to Drake and I. We read all the emails. Uh, we delete most of them pretty quickly, but we do actually read them. Uh, and <laughs> we do appreciate hearing from you. Uh, at, while you're at brainbuspodcast.com, you can also go and see our guest bios where you'll see a photo of uh, Dr. Landrum as well as contact info uh, for him and uh, information about this episode, including papers that might be interesting or generally any other references as well as previous episodes. So with that, we'll call it another episode in the books. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. And by the way, when you started that, I actually thought you were asking me only to go and rate <laughs> the podcast. Yeah, it was it I was so well done and so personal. I thought, oh my god, he wants me to go and rate it. Oh, okay, I I will. Hey, I'm not going to say no. I'm not going to say no. You want to go rate it? And then I realized, oh, he's back on script. Okay. <laughs> All right. With that, we'll say cheers. All right, guys. Take care. Bye.